0: I'll take a picture. I'll take a picture of the Sasquatch turkey with the the neck bone sticking out. And
1: the, I'm telling you, just watch Kenji do it, and you'll be like, actually, I can do that.
0: I feel like I need to go to like William Sonoma and get like two hundred dollars worth of like cutting things, and you know, you don't you need a you need a sharp knife? I have that
1: and um, an internet connected device, and you're you're ready to go. Hi everyone, welcome to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I am an associate professor of government here at William and Mary, and joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague Marcus Holmes. Hello, Marcus.
0: Hi, Jeff. How you doing? <laughs> Good. I get excited. The problem is for the listener at home. I, I tend to sort of have a lot of movements, and so I go in and out on the on the mic, which drives my editor, uh, audio engineer, Jeff. Great. Yeah, whoever's
1: producing this podcast is going to have to deal with that. So last time we talked about pandas. It was our very special panda episode, uh, and uh, I think we have maybe some follow up. Do you want? Do you want to take this one, Marcus?
0: I think we do have some follow up. Yeah. So uh, for those of, of you that have been paying attention to the Xi Jinping, uh, Joe Biden sort of summit or meeting, basically they had a they had a a, a very substantial face to face diplomacy sort of interaction, which we should talk about. But yes, which we will talk about. But. Uh, one of the things that happened uh, during evidently that happened during that meeting uh, was or me, immediately following the meeting discussion of the pandas the pandas that we had talked about on the last pod that were being sent back to uh, China that was making everybody kind of sad and or not everybody, but a lot of people were sad about the pandas you know uh, kind of going back and we we debated a little bit about whether or not this was sort of a signal that that China was sending, uh, whether this was just a zoological kind of, uh, of rationale and the pandas had to go back. And we, we didn't really come to any conclusions because neither of us know anything about pandas, really. Uh, but it was <laughs> a sort of open question as to, as to whether or not this had anything to do uh, with international politics, really. Like, what, maybe it's just, like, symbolic or, or whatever. Uh, it turns out that on Wednesday, after the, uh, the two leaders had, had met, uh, Xi Jinping said that China could send new pandas to the United States and talked about them as, quote, envoys of friendship between the Chinese and American peoples. He said, I learned that the San Diego Zoo and the Californians very much look forward to welcoming pandas back. Uh, we are ready to continue our cooperation with the United States on panda conservation and do our best to meet the wishes of the Californians so as to deepen the friendly ties between our two peoples.
1: So, so yes. Uh, so I will let you continue. But let me just make, make sure to clarify here, because I think yeah. you were aligning an important element of this, which is that this is something that Xi said in a speech to business leaders in a, after the meeting with Biden, right? right? So this is not, we have no evidence, and I've spent a lot of time poring over the readouts of the Xi-Biden meetings for any Panda references. And all I have seen is this reference, which is in a separate meeting that did not involve U.S. officials, although... Actually, I think the secretary of commerce gave a speech at the same place, but this is a speech to business leaders, Tim Cook, right? To Tim Cook and Elon Musk, Uh, an impressive group for sure, but not a government to government interaction. That's where Xi, who is really in public diplomacy mode at this point, talks about the pandas. I have no evidence that the pandas were brought up in uh, his meetings with Biden. So please continue.
0: Right. So, right. That's fair. So we don't know that they talked about the meetings themselves. What we do know is after the meeting, going to this business group, this luncheon or whatever it was, he talks, he just talks about the pandas. Right. So I think people kind of connecting the dots will say like, okay, sure, he's in public diplomacy mode. He's in sort of like goodwill mode or whatever. But he's also talking about pandas and and talks about. And I, I think we shouldn't like minimize the actual words that he used. Words are important. Envoys of friendship. Between the Chinese and American peoples like this is not like Joe Nye couldn't have written this better himself like this is this is like straight out of Xi Jinping like saying like this is the the symbolism of cooperation of having good relations Um, and so somebody like me looks at this and says yes this is panda diplomacy working. This is he got the message. He knows that people in the United States are a little bit, you know, upset about the pandas leaving. He's he's trying to do something about it. He's being, you know, sort of conciliatory and cooperative and invoking the very symbol that we talked about as being important. I I think this story is absolutely fantastic. I am I am heartened by the fact that yes, they're business people, you know, fine, but the fact that he used those words, I think, is actually like meaningful and I think it's a very good sign of some of the the. Or an indication, I will say, of maybe the sort of cooperative tone of the meeting uh, itself with, with Biden. You can imagine, for example, if the meeting had not gone well, is, is Xi Jinping likely to come out and talk about pandas and envoys of friendship and, you know, welcoming pandas back and a, a symbol of our continued cooperation? Probably not, I would guess. So I think that this is sort of indicative of something important that might be happening in the relationship between two the two countries.
1: I think this is not indicative of anything. And I'm going to maintain my panda diplomacy skepticism, despite the fact that G brought this up along with a bunch of other things for like a second in a speech to some business people. So what I think is interesting about this, so he's talking about San Diego Zoo, which hasn't had a panda since 2019, right? And so this whole narrative about the decline in U.S. relations leading to China revoking the pandas pulling them back to their homeland, you know, it it falls apart when you look at San Diego, which hasn't, I mean, the whole, the whole timeline is off. So he's talking about San Diego because he's in California. He's talking about the San Diego zoo and how they really want pandas back. And, you know, somebody put that in his talking points, but, but the idea that this is like something that matters to China or that Xi himself is manipulating the panda availability in order to like send a message to the world. Come
0: on. Come on, Marcus. He said, and I, I will quote, recently, the three pandas at Smith, Sm- Smithsonian's National Zoo in Washington, D.C. have returned to China. I was told that many American people, especially children, were really reluctant to say goodbye to the pandas. Children? Just what about this adult? I was reluctant <laughs> to say goodbye. <laughs> well, you're sort of a child. But, yeah. And went to the zoo to see them off, Xi said, at the dinner event on Wednesday, right? He He's expressing... Like, a profound sense of, like, empathy with the American people and, like, you know, dipping into these feelings that Americans have about the pandas. Like, you can't tell me that this was – he he's, he's, he's expressing, like, emotion here. He's, like, showing that he gets it. He understands how important this is to people. I, I don't know. Anybody can look at this with a heart and, like, not be, like, a little bit sort of, like, impressed by what she is doing. Now is he is he is he back in Beijing like you know sort of personally counting like well this panda is going to go here and this and we're going to like make these pandas available no okay probably not but the fact that he's talking about this uh, at all to me is suggestive of the idea that there is some importance here like there is something about the pandas that are not just resonating you know with us because we like like pandas it's resonating with Xi himself.
1: All right, I want to come back to the business person meeting because I think yeah. it, was, it was actually quite interesting. But before we get into that, and before we talk about Xi and Biden in more depth, I want to spend just a a few minutes on some news coming out of the State Department this week. This is in the context of the continuing conflict between Israel and Hamas. As we're recording, Israeli troops are are in Gaza City and are um, at this hospital that Israel says has... Hamas fighters or Hamas uh, leadership complex under the hospital. And this is all a very fraught, difficult situation with uh, real impacts for Gazan civilians and for Israel's plans to try to to address the threat from Hamas. But when all of this is going on, we have a news report that State Department employees have sent dissent cables to the Secretary of State. Through what's called the dissent channel, and there's some kind of large number of these apparently, or a large number of State Department officials have have lent their signature to some of these dissent cables. And uh, I thought maybe we could have a little conversation about the dissent channel, which is a, a kind of interesting point of of history. I don't know if its relevance to today's policy issues is is all that all that great, but I think it's something we we should talk about. For for those who aren't familiar with the dissent channel, this is kind of an interesting State Department thing. So this stems from the Vietnam War, where State Department officials who were stationed abroad uh, had real concerns about U.S. policy in Vietnam and how it was affecting foreign policy in their countries. And the dissent channel was created so that State Department officials could send word back to Washington that disagreed with State Department policy. So this is an explicit channel by which State Department employees can express their frustration or disagreement with the policy as it has been dictated by State Department headquarters. And this is quite an extraordinary creation, right? I mean, just from a management perspective, it's a good idea for organizations to get feedback from their employees that something isn't working something's going wrong but in the US government that's a that's tricky business because policy is set by the president and the job of state department officials in foreign countries is to implement state department policy it's not really to create that policy that happens in washington and so this was a creation that was supposed to allow kind of a, a little bit of a pressure release valve so that uh, State Department employees abroad could make their views known without having to make those views known publicly, right? And and part of the, the angle here is a lot of people were resigning during the Vietnam War in protest about what was going on. And that's actually happened also in this current conflict uh, between Israel and Hamas. There was a prominent State Department official who resigned in protest because he objected to U.S. support for this conflict, particularly in the, the provision of weapons to Israel um, for, for this for this conflict. And you resigned in protest, and we actually saw quite a lot of resignations during the Trump administration as well, as State Department officials disagreed with particular policies. And they, there are relatively few levers to pull. If you're a State Department official, you can resign and try to draw attention through your resignation to some policy that you disagree with, or you can send one of these dissent cables through the dissent channel. So there's a specific mechanism through which these, these State Department officials can operate. And the kind of history of this is that the people at main State, the at state headquarters in D.C., kind of get these dissent cables, and nothing happens. It's not as if the dissent cables are then acted upon to change U.S. policy, which, which I think makes this whole thing quite fascinating. You know, from my kind of jaded, cynical perspective, this is a mechanism for employee morale, I guess, like a way to make State Department officials think that anyone cares, that they disagree with U.S. policy, so they can send these dissenting cables saying, we don't agree with what you're doing. And then the State Department's like, hey, we're listening. We're listening to you. We have a dissent channel. You sent a dissent cable. That's great. Now get back to work. Right? And I think that that's... (laughs) <laughs> kind of what happens in these things, but, but it, it, it kind of makes the State Department officials feel better that they're able to express this dissent. And sometimes you get news reports like the one we'll put in the show notes that say that X number of, of State Department employees have signed this dissent saying that they disagree with U.S. policy in terms of its support for Israel because of the loss of the lives of Gazan civilians, a very important issue. So they're going to express their, their views in this dissent cable. And will U.S. policy change as a result? No. No, it won't. So, Marcus, what's your take on this story?
0: <laughs> I, I just covered. You wanted to stop. I would stop the podcast. I, think I mean, I that was it. a pretty good uh, soliloquy about yeah, you know you. the Descension. I mean, you know, I I I don't entirely disagree with you. I mean, I think part of what's going on here is that it's it's sort of been provided as this this private kind of almost you know uh, uh, non public way of voicing criticism or concern about something the State Department of the U.S. government is doing. But what's notable is, like, as you're talking, you're like, well, there's this, there's this news report about how many dissent channel, you know, things were sent. So, now, clearly, it, it is also, like, a public type of thing. It's not like your messages are being, you know, sort of portrayed to the public. But but these these dissent channel... Uh, messages or like the the topics of them often are kind of released to the to the public so we know about them. So the the famous example that comes to my mind is is during the Trump administration during that so-called Muslim travel ban where he had the ban I think of seven predominantly muslim countries. Uh the dissent channel was like used a uh, uh, high frequency, right? It was it was used a lot and and we heard about it. Right, so we didn't get to see like what the individual, you know, diplomats were saying in these dissent cables, but we knew that this activity was going on. And Sean Spicer actually was asked about it, I think, at a press conference, and he basically said what you said, which is like either either you know with us or not. If you don't like your job, you can quit. That's fine, but like you know, expressing dissent is not really you know what we're what we're interested in. But it was public. But
1: but Marcus, just to clarify, though, though these are these are not officially released, right? So so the the reason reason we know about them is that there's there were leaks. Right. Right. Like like some State Department official, maybe one who sent the dissent cable, called a reporter and said, hey, there was this dissent cable that was signed by these this many officials. Right. That's how we know about this stuff. It's not that these are there's an official mechanism for sharing with the U.S. public that there was dissent.
0: No, but but what my point is really like the content doesn't matter as much as the knowledge that a thousand people have sent, you know, dissent cables about the Trump administration's. Uh, you know, Muslim ban like that—that's a signal that the State Department or many of the, the sort of rank and file members of the State Department who are you know working on behalf of the U.S. government simply aren't you know satisfied with the U.S. U.S. policy, right? So it's it's a weird sort of mix of the content is private, like the actual arguments are, are private. Only the people in the State Department, the higher ups, uh, see it. But the knowledge that these things exist often becomes public, which is is kind of you know creates this kind of interesting dynamic. In general, I agree with you. Like this, this it's it's hard to sort of see how any of this really matters in the sort of the scheme of things. Like the the rank and file diplomats who are you know in country are not the ones creating policy, but they are by definition supposed to carry out the policy that's created by the State Department back home and and uh, you know HQ and all that. But I do, there's something about it that is sort of like a romantic ideal that I do appreciate. Um, I'm not sure if other countries have dissent channels that are sort of uh, institutionalized as this. I don't think so. I know that the UK has expressed over time this sort of value that people who work for the government are free to criticize policy. You're, you're sort of uh, encouraged if you have like a different opinion, kind of like a devil's advocate thing, You should you should mention it. You should talk about like why you disagree. I think Canada has something similar. But this is the only one that I know of that is sort of an institutionalized kind of like hotline where if you if you really don't like something, you can get on there and say it, and it's going to bypass the sort of bureaucratic you know channels it's going to go straight to the higher ups
1: yeah that's a, that's an important important part of it right is that yeah. is that the idea here is that that this is something that your manager, your boss, can't quash right like right. you are able to send this cable, and there's no one who's going to say you're not allowed. To, to send that cable. That's the institutionalization of it, that there's a mechanism for people to really say what they want, and it will be on the record in the sense that it's like internal record, and it will be seen by someone in the Secretary of State's office. They can't stop you from doing that. And I think that's the kind of best part of the of the dissent cable mechanism.
0: Yeah, it's it's a little bit – I mean, it, it's not a great comparison, but it's a little bit like the sort of whistleblower type of yeah. mechanisms that a lot of organizations have, which is like you have the ability to say – Something's not right here. Like, I, I I want to express my concern. Something's not, not right. And it doesn't mean anybody's going to do anything about it, but you do have that right to kind of express yourself. And I would imagine if I'm a diplomat, uh, you know, working with the State Department and there's policies being handed down that I don't agree with, I think this would be a nice way that that would allow me to have a little bit of voice in the in the conversation and make sure that my view... While maybe not going to you know manifest any kind of material change on the ground. At least is being heard, and at least is being understood. So there's a certain like romanticism that I I do like about this.
1: Yeah, and I I think there, from a kind of personnel management perspective, what often happens when there are dissent cables is that the Secretary of State's office responds, and you're seeing that in this case. So Secretary Blinken actually met with one of the signatories to to the first one of these cables, and then issued a statement. To like an email to the whole department talking about the cables, basically acknowledging that people are upset. He wrote, quote, I know that for many of you, the suffering caused by this crisis is taking a profound personal toll. Some people in the department may disagree with approaches we are taking or have views on what we can do better. He promised organized forums in Washington to hear from employees. And he said, quote, we're listening. What you share is informing our policy and our messages. And I don't believe any of that but from a personnel management perspective that's exactly the right thing to do right cuz he's got a workforce to manage and it's in everybody's best interest that that workforce is aligned with the policy vision of the United States of America if allowing a dissent channel and acknowledging it and talking about how you're taking everybody's concerns seriously is enough to like calm some people down then you know from a management perspective that's the that's the right thing to do but i have uh not seen evidence here that This is going to change U.S. policy. And and I mean, you know, some of the proposals that are are coming through these dissent channels, I mean, I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm not sure, like, there was one proposal proposing a particular set of Palestinian prisoners be released in exchange for hostages. Fine. I, I don't know on the merits whether that's the right proposal, but this is the kind of thing that... Israel has a say in, right? It's not as if the U.S. can mandate a particular trade for for hostages. So aside from the particulars of the policies that are being recommended by these dissent cables, the idea here is one of allowing State Department employees to kind of vent, but it's hard to know. Well, I'm skeptical that this is having much of an effect on actual policy, but Marcus, this is actually a, a cool research idea. So we should scour the news a history of descent cables and try to find for we need a data set for sure of all these descent cables and then try to find links between those descent cables and any actual policy change i think it'll be interesting
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the challenge is um, that a lot of the folks presumably that are sending the cables have like a a specific viewpoint. They might have a like sort of relatively narrow view based on kind of who they are, where they are. Like, they have a, a certain perspective that might make a lot of sense to them, but oftentimes, likely, sort of lacks the broader kind of understanding that somebody like the Secretary of State has, right? So, it's like it's relatively easy for somebody that's you know working you know, in a particular issue area to kind of think that like they, they know what the the solution is. And so they send off this message in the descent channel. Uh, But for somebody who has to take like sort of the broader view and all of these different views into account, it's going to be harder, I think to get your message to have any sort of meaningful, full change. I do like the idea though, of going back and trying to find historical, you know, examples of these descent cables and, and then tracing the process by which maybe Some policy changes were made based on the existence of these cables. I mean, I think that's a that's a tough sort of empirical challenge, but. You know, presumably you could you could maybe show like after receiving a dissent cable of a particular type, you know, the secretary of state changes slightly the language that's used maybe when talking about a particular issue, maybe adjust their position subtly. You know, they're not going to reverse course and, you know, pull out of Vietnam necessarily. But they might say, you know, we're going to we're going to change like a little bit of of sort of on the margins what we're doing. I, I would imagine you could maybe find examples of that. So I agree with you. If there's anybody out there that wants to work on this project or write a grant proposal, let us know.
1: One thing that also complicates this idea of whether dissent cables matter is that anyone with any kind of sway or like pull within the organization doesn't need a dissent cable take cable to make their views known. The people who actually have the ear of the Secretary of State or have the ability to sway policy, they're not using the dissent channel, right? So, So by definition, the people who have to file one of these cables are the people who don't have any ability to change policy. And so that kind of... Creates a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. But yeah, I, I think it would be cool. Even if we couldn't point to the particular effects of descent cables, I think it would be interesting to see where do we see the most news reports around descent
0: cables. Right. Like when do they get the attention?
1: Yeah. Right. Like like what is the the chronology of this? Seven in this year, four in this year. And, and I wonder if any of these have been been I mean, I know some from Vietnam have been declassified, but it would be kind of interesting to kind of look at some of these cables and and see if we can um tally up which are the which policies in the United States most annoyed uh State Department employees. I think that would be kind of interesting to look
0: at. Yeah, I mean that that actually in and of itself would be kind of an interesting research question, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: So the other thing happening this week, in addition to this this conflict going on in the Middle East, is The meeting between President Biden and uh, President Xi in San Francisco, kind of a a few elements of this. I I don't know. I'm happy to dive into whatever you want to talk about, Marcus, but there were kind of low expectations going in, and both sides kind of did their best to manage expectations around what could actually come out of this meeting, this first meeting in a year, I think, between the two leaders, although there have been high-level meetings, but not between the presidents. One thing that they did in advance of this meeting, which I thought was really interesting, I wanted to get your take on was they made the decision the week before the, the, the meeting that there would be no joint statement that came out of the meeting. This is something you always see when, when the president meets with somebody. You see a joint statement from those two countries that talks about what was discussed and what was agreed to. And they said in advance there would be no joint statement. Each country will be issuing its own statement about what happened, and I, I thought this was really interesting. And I also, I think this is better. But I'm, I mean, I'm interesting to hear your your take on wh- whether this means anything or or the optics around this.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, my interpretation was they were they were trying desperately to lower <clears throat> the stakes of the of the meeting on both sides. Like, so they said, like, look, by not having a, a joint statement that we have to agree to. Number one, we're not setting sort of expectations because the minute you, you, you sort of have a summit like this, everybody's wondering, like, what are the outcomes going to be? Like, what is what are they going to agree to? Where are they going to disagree? Like, what's going to be in the statement? What's not going to be in the statement? You know, we see this all the time when, when Biden was having those summits with Putin before the, the war. Everybody wanted to know, like, what would they agree to and what was going to be not not in the statement? So by saying at the outset, like we're not going to have one, sort of you know limits the <laughs> limits the expectation of the meeting because you're not you're not in all the way, you know searching for like what's what's not in it. So I think that's actually um, a fairly productive and smart smart way of doing this. Anytime Xi and Biden get together, and they've they've met a lot actually over time, especially when he was you know vice president to now. I mean they they kind of know each other really well, but this is this is obviously a momentous kind of occasion, and the stakes are, are relatively high. And so I think anything that the State Department or the White House can do to sort of like minimize expectations about these meetings is is beneficial uh, uh, for Biden. And I think I think it worked, actually. I think, you know, the fact that we're talking about pandas um, and we're talking about artificial intelligence uh, agreements and not having to worry about, you know, sort of like the big kind of like contentious issues like, you know, Taiwan or, you know, China's support uh, for for Russia and things like that. I think it was a smart move to kind of set the the stage and say, we're not going to have a joint statement. And so therefore whatever happens in the meeting happens and you know, our our expectations are are therefore relatively low. So I kind of like that uh, approach and I actually wish that they would do this more often.
1: Yeah. The best thing about the lack of a joint statement is that it saves them a ton of work. And I just, as a former Government employee. As soon as they made it something I'm like, that is fantastic. Can you imagine the number of hours of staff time that go into trying to, try to pre- preparing these statements back and forth, getting the other side to agree, the translations, do the translations match? It's, it's a huge amount of work. And if we can just dispense with that and let each country say what they thought they talked about. That's fine, right? Like I, I don't I don't think we're missing anything by not having a joint statement. We can compare the statement from China to the statement from the United States and see what does what China wanna emphasize, what does the US wanna emphasize. So I, I was feeling for my uh, my State Department colleagues who dodged a huge bullet, not having to try to figure out what statement was gonna come out of this meeting
0: yeah it's a lot of work and and you know frankly you know it's not clear necessarily that they're all that useful precisely because they are so sort of wordsmith and they they're negotiated on on both sides and so it, it sometimes i think reflects kind of the tenor of the conversation, but oftentimes it's like the result of this kind of like negotiated you know uh, settlement or whatever on the on the sort of text of the of the joint statement and it often ends up being just kind of you know not meaningless but but sort of like doesn't tell you as much as you kind of hoped that it would and like i said before everything that you know people start doing is they do you know control f and try to find like did they talk about this or did they agree (laughs) on 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 that and you know pandas we're the pandas (laughs) right we're the pandas (laughs) are we getting more pandas or not like that's what we care about so like you know it's 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 sort of nice to have a meeting where they're just kind of like look we're gonna talk and we'll have a press conference afterwards and biden had a lengthy press conference you can ask me what we talked about i'll tell you um and maybe you don't believe him maybe he's mischaracterizing the conversation who knows but like. You know, just it's kind of refreshing to just have a a meeting where the two kind of get together and hash things out. And then afterwards, they talk about what they talked about. That that seems fine to me.
1: Yeah. So in terms of the substance of the meeting, the big takeaways here were a resumption of military-to-military communication, military-to-military ties. This is something that China cut off last year after Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan, right? And, you know, this is something we talked about a lot on the podcast. By the importance of these military-to-military ties as a means of addressing protect, potential escalation risk, so something's happening in the world. Did China intend to do this? Is this a this is the beginning of a of a Chinese offensive somewhere, or vice versa? So let's have the military leaders be able to pick up the phone and talk to the other side's military leaders and deconflict and reassure if if uh, that this isn't really you know World War Three happening this came up in the balloon in the balloon situation where the us military attempted to get china on the phone and like couldn't do it and you know this is a big mess and it, it would have been nice to be able to kind of deconflict in this way the military to military thing though i think is really interesting because china very clearly uses military to military ties as a concession that they can make to gain something in negotiation whereas i think the us perspective is like, we, this is just common sense. Like, mm-hmm. we, we want this, and the fact that the military officials can't pick up the phone and talk to each other is ridiculous. And so this ought to be, like, the general state of affairs. And so for that reason, the U.S. is, like, trying to win it back. But I think tr- China successfully manipulates this. It's like, we're going to take it away so that we can give it back to you later and win some benefit for that
0: yeah no that's right I mean we talked about this with the the balloon like it's they they are sort of on record as saying we don't we we want the United States in some instances to be uncertain. we want the United States in some instances to kind of like be on their toes and wondering you know what's going on and they view the the, the hotline the sort of military to military communication as something that's almost like a privilege that can be given to the United States, not something that should be the sort of like de facto state of the world and so my feeling is that we, ta- as we talked about before, I mean, if you agree that sort of like misperception, uh, mistakes, unanticipated escalation are all sort of reasonable things to be worried about in this world, particularly when you have you know these these sort of high profile um, conflicts and situations like Taiwan, military to military communication seems to me to be incredibly important, and so re- whether or not China views it as sort of like a carrot that they're giving us or something that that you know they've they've you know we had to win or whatever. I don't really care about that. I'm just happy that they're actually going to start, you know, picking up the phone. As Biden said in his press conference uh, uh, after the the meeting, he said, I find most assuring or what if I am most assuring is as he raised and I fully agreed that if either one of us has any concern, any concern about anything between our nations or happening in our region, we should pick up the phone and call one another and we'll take the call. That's important progress. And I agree. So if, if Biden feels like he had to give up something to just establish this modicum like level of... of communication, to me, it's, to me, it's worth it. Cause I think that that, you know, is an important part of, of international relations, being able to communicate with the other side and say what we're worried about or what we're doing in order to clarify intentions. So we don't end up in some type of unintentional uh, kind of problem. So I, I think this is one, of actually the most important things that came out of, of the summit, and out of the, the interaction. And, you know, if it means that the United States is perceived as giving something up, that's absolutely fine with me.
1: But I think that just shows how, little came out of this, out of this meeting that we're talking about the military's willingness to pick up the phone is a big deal, that this is like the best thing that came out of this, came out of this meeting, we're talking about low expectation, This was the thing we expected to get and we got it, right? A resumption of military to military ties. Woohoo. You know, but this, this ought to be the baseline, right? And I, I agree with you that it's important, but man, it, this is not, this is not a very substantive Thing that we won, or that
0: they gave up, or, or whatever. Yeah, you're not wrong, but I mean, I do think given if we t- if we take a step back at what the status quo kind of was before the meeting. I mean, here you had um, Xi meeting with Putin, you know, sort of discussion about like how much support uh, China was going to give Russia. We know that they're not, you know, great allies, but you know, sort of it seemed like she was sort of toying with the idea of becoming a stronger partner uh, with Putin. At the same time, we had the balloon, and we had all this sort of like uncertainty about you know, what's going on in, in uh, the Pacific and the idea that if there was something happening, the United States wouldn't be able to get in contact with their Chinese counterparts because they weren't picking up the phone. I mean, I do think it in any sort of normal relationship, the idea that you would be open to talking with the other side would be viewed as, as sort of like a nothing burger. I agree with that. But in this particular instance, I do think it's a step in the right right direction. It's not a huge step, but it's certainly better than we when we had before. So I think, you know, the fact that they were at least able to come to this you know, agreement shows that they're on the right track. It's not completely indicative of anything, you know, in in terms of like the relationship of changing. But to me, it it is important because it's a step forward and not a step backwards. You can imagine a situation, uh, I think, quite easily where they have this meeting. And in the press conference afterwards, Biden says something like, well, we talked about the hotline. We talked about the the military, you know, to military communication. And China prefers to keep it unclear. Like they prefer to, you know, maybe keep the status quo. In which case the, the conversation would be like, well, that's you know, that's a pity. Like that's too bad that they're not gonna that wasn't something that was an outcome of the meeting. So I think if you put it in those terms, you could say, like, okay, it's not huge, but at least it's something that, that Biden was able to get out of this.
1: The other concrete agreement that came out of this was for China to crack down on the provision of some fentanyl precursors that, that are that are coming out of China. That was an important point for, for the US side. And so China China agreed to do that. There was also discussion of Taiwan. No agreement came out of that, but both sides kind of expressing their view, and China saying, We have no plans to conduct a military operation, but this, this situation can't go on forever, and the U.S. saying, You know, back off. Uh, some other discussions of general relations that I thought were a little bit interesting that the message that I think Xi was delivering here is We're in competition, yes, but that doesn't have to lead to conflict. I think Biden is receptive to that message and has a similar message. So at least the kind of headline thing that both parties are emphasizing in their readouts is, you know, nobody wants a conflict here. There's competition and we need to figure out ways to manage that competition such that it doesn't lead to a conflict that didn't have to happen.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the... the sort of default position of most people when they think about the U you know, S and China at the moment is this question of like, are we in a new cold war? Like is what we're basically seeing, you know, sort of the development of, you know, China, Russia, you know, sort of on one side with China really, you know, sort of leading the way. And then the United States, Western Europe, the EU, et cetera, kind of on the other side. And, and what we're seeing is, is basically like the cold war 2.0. And I think both sides did a good job in in discussing the the summit or the face to face interaction as being you know look we we understand that China is a competitor of the United States the United States is a competitor of China but the Earth as as Xi was talking about the Earth is pretty big and you can there's room for you know two superpowers to kind of coexist peacefully and do their thing. Um, Biden also talked about, you know, somebody, one of the reporters asked uh, Biden if he trusts G, he said, you know, do you, do you trust him? Like, do you think he's going to live up to his promises? Because they talked about like election interference and stuff like that, and and Biden used the words of of Ronald Reagan, which was, I you know, trust but verify. Yeah, I trust, but I'm also going to verify, right? Which is like this sort of weird kind of way of putting it. But the idea is basically, you know, yeah, for, I, my default position is I, def- I I do trust, and I'm going to make sure we have verification measures, but I'm going to I'm going to trust that. The trust but verify came at the end of the Cold War. Like, this is like the end end of it. Like, this is when the United States and the Soviet Union were basically figuring out their differences and trying to figure out a way to live uh, peacefully. Now, the Soviet Union would dissolve for economic reasons, but they were kind of coming up with a a view of the world where both sides could kind of, like, do their own thing um, and and not be in conflict. So Biden's language there, to me, is indicative of kind of reinforcing that idea. This doesn't have to be a Cold War we can be in a situation where China continues to rise and the United States continues to do its thing and we don't have to be fighting over Taiwan uh, or over Ukraine or anything else. Uh, We can both, you know, sort of exist peacefully. And so I I actually really liked the trust but verified language because it harkens back to a time when, you know, Reagan and Gorbachev understood cold war is not good for anybody. Like we need to, we need to be in a situation where we're not in conflict with one another and we, we respect each other and we can, you know, coexist peacefully.
1: I like that you, brought up the the earth is big enough for both of us line that 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 G made there it's interesting because a couple of analysts have pointed out that G said something similar to Obama in like 2013 but the line was the pacific is big enough for both of us and so some are interpreting this this in a different way you, you know you took that as like well we can we can get along but you know you could also interpret that as back off stay out of the pacific Right. You can have your North Atlantic or whatever, but the Chinese sphere of influence seems to have expanded in the intervening years in the last 10 years.
0: Right. I I actually talked to my students about this today. I gave them the exact quote where he told he told uh, Obama this and he told Putin and uh, Trump this like, look, this is all about, you know, the Pacific, you know, stay on the Pacific or whatever. And now he's sort of like upgrading. To Earth, you know, it's sort of like, oh, a <laughs> bit bigger. Yeah, I, I I, didn't, I know the New York Times, the story that I read this morning, like tried to sort of like make this seem <laughs> like it was a nefarious comment and um, maybe it was a translation that, You think it just messed up the line? Like he meant to say the same thing? I, I'm not sure if he messed up the No, but I think the other way to interpret it is he's, he's basically saying, you know, the Earth is big enough for two. Like, and I, and I agree with that. Like, just as the Earth was big enough for two in 1985, 1986, 1987, as the United States and Soviet Union were learning to sort of like coexist and not- be like at each other's throats and threatening nuclear war with one another and you know always kind of worried about conflict if if she's point is and I'm the sort of ever optimist here if his point was like look the earth is big enough for us to worry about our stuff and you to worry about your stuff and we're not going to have to necessarily fight over these things then that's to me that's a good outcome because like, I think it's empirically true I think the earth is pretty big and China has a strong military a strong economy and the United States has a strong military and strong economy. There's no reason why both countries can't just kind of do their thing and prosper. You know, the earth is big enough for both sides to prosper, in other words.
1: I think that the general message coming from Xi was positive in this way. And you can imagine an alternative meeting where China approached it with a more aggressive or confrontational message like – stop trying to mess with our national security by cutting off the supply of chips, right? Like this was clearly a talking point for China, stop trying to cut off the supply of chips. But it was was done in the sense of like, we can still be partners. We don't have to be, or we can manage our competition in a constructive way, but that didn't have to be the message, right? So it's not hard to imagine. And we've had summits where the message has been much harsher Mm -hmm. um, or high-level meetings at least. And so China clearly came in to this meeting with a more consil I don't know conciliatory is the right word but but a more um measured approach not a confrontational approach and that's good news right I mean like there there's no way to read that as anything but good news so it, it could have been a lot worse the the fact that there wasn't a concrete takeaway on some of the things that we would like to we would like to have concrete takeaways on is unfortunate but there's still a version of this meeting that goes, goes down in flames. And th- this was not that. And I think that that's, that's good news.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I, I, I talk to my students about this all the time. Like one of the things you need to do with these meetings is kind of run the counterfactual. Like how else could this have gone? We know that Xi and Putin just met last month and, and we talked about on this podcast, you know, well, does, is this an indication that China and Russia are going to get kind of, you know, cozier together and there's going to be, you know, sales of arms and things like that. This could have been a summit where Xi showed up and, and sort of pledged support for Russia, told the United States, you know, what you're doing in Ukraine is wrong, um, been forceful on issues about military to military communication, been forceful on issues of artificial intelligence, said what you're doing, um, your, your language with respect to Taiwan is unacceptable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we didn't have that. And so it's easy to kind of look at this, this meeting and say, yeah, not a lot came out of it in terms of like substantive cooperative uh, points. But I think what you're alluding to is, one, it could have gone a lot worse. And so maybe those are that's low-hanging fruit. Like, okay, great. It wasn't worse than it, it was. That's true. But the language and the sort of, as you note, kind of conciliatory nature, or at least seemingly conciliatory nature of, of Xi Jinping towards Biden, I think is important. Because the counterfactual here is, I think, is also very easy to see it happening, where it was a much more conflictual meeting uh, with Xi really – particularly because he wants to show strength domestically and sort of stand up to the to the West and stand up to the United States, he could have come out, you know, much stronger than he did. Um, and, and the fact that he didn't, I think, is also a, a maybe symbolism or a signal that, you know, they do have the intention of having a more cooperative relationship with the United States, which I think is good for everybody. So I, I actually agree with you.
1: One area where there was a rumor to be an agreement in the works, where we didn't see an agreement, was AI, as as you just mentioned. And the only mention of AI in the White House readout of the meeting is, quote, the leaders affirmed the need to address the risks of advanced AI systems and improve AI safety through U.S.-China government talks, which is...
0: A little bit, yeah.
1: About about as low as you can go in terms of like, yeah, we'll talk about this in the future, right? It made made the the readout, which Pandas did not, I'll, I'll point out. No Pandas in the readout, but AI made the readout. So there had been talk in advance of this meeting that... The, the parties were set to unveil a, uh, a some kind of agreement that those parties would agree not to have ai in charge of our weapon systems i guess i guess is the is was this was this agreement and that didn't happen
0: yeah it was actually a little confusing because the reporting earlier in the week was was almost like this was kind of a done deal like it yeah. sort of seemed like they had sort of like as you keep on you know making the argument to me like all of this stuff is all figured out in advance and so yeah. i was like "Oh, maybe jeff is right maybe they've actually like sort of pre-negotiated <laughs> this ai thing and it just got leaked or whatever um so i was sort of going into the summit sort of assuming that that was one of the outputs so that was one of the things that they were going to announce and then nope turns out like they didn't either either they didn't talk about it uh it and, and didn't come to an agreement or for whatever reason they're not it's not part of like the readout that they had which seems kind of weird so it seems like something happened between and maybe it was just bad information earlier in the week that like they had sort of come to an agreement on this or likely to come to an agreement on this or whatever. Maybe that was sort of like fed to the media by somebody who didn't know what was going on. But it did certainly seem like this was kind of a done deal. And and so when you don't see that in the readout, you're you're left wondering, well, what what happened there and why you know such kind of like boilerplate general you know sort of like talk about AI that that was a little bit a little bit weird. I agree with that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's clear that they didn't have the agreement. The question, though, is what, what was this agreement going to be? And was this worthwhile anyway? And, and some of the reporting around this is, is pretty amusing. There's a, there's a Fox News article. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. The, the headline is Biden hands. This is from before the meeting, of course. Biden hands China big win with military deal. Experts say incredibly poor decision. And I I read this article, which I I don't recommend, but I'll I'll put it in the show notes in case anyone wants to look at it. But, you know, basically they found they found some expert somewhere who said an expert, someone who works in the AI business who said it would be a really bad idea to uh, agree not to put AI in charge of our nuclear weapons which is basically what this, this deal was kind of rumored to do. It was like, let's agree, U.S. and China, not to let the computers control the control um, targeting of our nuclear weapon systems and other systems and nuclear command and control. And they, this article found some experts saying, oh, no, we, we have an advantage in AI. We should not give up that <laughs> advantage by um, agreeing not to put AI in charge of our nuclear weapons. And let me say, as the nuclear weapons person in this podcast, AI in charge of nuclear weapons is a horrible idea. And I don't think anyone wants to do that. And this is the kind of agreement that if they reached an agreement not to put AI in charge of their <laughs> nuclear weapons, fine. But no one was going to do that because that's ridiculous. When the current state of the technology, the idea that like we're going to say, OK, the AI is in charge now, that, that's insane. And I think that's insane as as much insane in China as it is here. And so this is not an agreement that needs to be made because no one's doing this anyway.
0: Well, that, this was the whole perplexing part of it, right? We saw this, like, you know, news that there, they came to an agreement that we're not going to, like, give AI, a chat GPT our nuclear weapons, and everybody kind of looked around <laughs> and, like, wasn't that sort of, like, self-evident? Like, you really need <laughs> really to agree to, to that? Us? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think if if it was only sort of, like, this general uh, sort of, like, you know, what's the word? Like, we're, we're going to get together and sort of make this, like, really kind of modest... Uh, statement that we think that humans should be involved in, you know, nuclear decision-making. Okay. Like, I think everybody would kind of agree to that. We got to keep humans in the loop, you know, like we can't have ChatGPT like launching nuclear weapons. I think most people would say yes to that. So the fact that they couldn't even do that in the, in the, in the meeting is a little strange. Like, well, I don't eh.
1: But I don't think that, I think that would be ridiculous to have that agreement. Yeah. Like that's not an agreement you need to make. Right. I think we can all be trusted not to put ChatGPT in charge of our nuclear weapons. Nobody wants to do that. So the question here is, are there agreements in the AI space that would be worthwhile? And I'm actually not sure there are on a bilateral basis between the U.S. and China. What really matters in terms of AI regulation or limiting the scope of AI and military capacity are going to be domestic decision-making with regard to U.S. military systems and artificial intelligence. And the same thing on on the Chinese side. And an international agreement on this, I mean, it's fine, but, but, but really where the rubber meets the road is in domestic policy on both sides. And I can't imagine the U.S. reaching an agreement without having some kind of domestic policy or legal framework or something to deal with this internally before we say to China, okay, you should do this too you got to have control of the situation in your own country before you can say, okay, here's an international agreement that's going to set some limits. So I don't even think this is where action is on on AI right now.
0: We talked last time or the time before about how China showed up at that UK uh, AI sort of— The Bletchley Park, yeah. Right, the meeting. Um, And there was some indication by me— that this was a good sort of this is good evidence that China might be just sort of playing ball and in, and in, in sort of international law and like right. wanting to engage in Western uh, institutions.
1: And I made fun of the the minister of science and technology for you made for fun China. of
0: it. And and then it turns out that like they couldn't they, they didn't get to a deal on AI or they didn't you know if they discussed it it didn't really you know uh, produce anything which I guess leads credence to the idea that maybe China isn't sort of as invested in making progress on this issue uh, as I had had thought. I also happen to agree with you, like I think all of the action on this, this type of thing comes domestically first, right? So the United States is going to figure out, it's, th- it's going to get its own house in order and then it's going to figure out what China's doing and like why it doesn't like what it's doing or or why that's a threat or whatever. And then it'll deal with that problem. It seems like at the moment, you know, they're, they're kind of approaching this from an institution, like an international institution perspective, which which makes sense. I mean, this is what, this is what you do in international relations. You get together, you talk about problems and, and all that kind of stuff. But it seems a little premature if the United States and China domestically kind of haven't figured out exactly what their own strategies are um, and what they want to see happen at the international level. Because right now it just kind of seems like everybody's doing their own thing and there's not a whole lot of agreement, partially because states aren't sure what they want out of an international agreement. And I think that makes sense given the state of of the technology and how it's changing so quickly. It's not obvious to anybody really what international legislation should look like um, when you don't really know what you want to do domestically.
1: Yeah, and I mean the challenge with AI, and, and we could we could do maybe we should do a whole po- podcast on on this, but the, the challenge with AI is is that it is private sector led in terms of developments in the technology. So, you know, the US military has AI technology, the Defense Department's working on intelligence community and all that. But the real action I think is on, in the private sector. And so you know an agreement not to give ai the nuclear weapons codes is fine but that's that's not really going really to address the the pace of progress in ai because the action is elsewhere and so when you think about who are the countries that would need to be involved in some kind of international agreement to limit ai or you know make sure we don't have some kind of a matrix scenario happening well Sure, China and the U.S. are, are important, right? Because that's where a lot of the AI development is happening. But like, it's also in Canada, right? <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget about the Canadians. And you know, other countries are are, are doing their own because it's a it's a global enterprise, right? And and so, you would really need either a multilateral international agreement to address the underlying technology, or a more limited kind of arms control esque agreement bilaterally between a countries with nuclear weapons saying we're going to do this kind of risk risk reduction measure of not giving chat gpt our nuclear codes and again i think that's like not a necessary agreement to make but you can imagine down the line when ai is more capable of handling something like nuclear weapon systems some agreement to say okay as a risk reduction measure it means you both agree mutually not to do this but i think like that will only happen if both sides don't want to do that anyway and so, again, it's the, the domestic arena where the action is first. Right. All right, Marcus, thanks for joining me. As I said, we're going to be off next week, but I would like to invite everyone listening to send us a note at CheapTalkPod at gmail.com or go to SpeakPipe.com slash CheapTalk to leave us a message. We really want your, your questions. Marcus, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a professor of international relations. And I occasionally have social events, not very often, but occasionally I'll be at like something with, with the normies, with people who aren't academics and someone will come up to me and they'll be like, Oh, what do you do? And I'll I'll be like, I'm a professor in international relations or whatever. And that, and then they'll be, they'll ask me some question related to something that's going on in the world. Something that's been on their mind for a long time and they just haven't had the right person to kind of run that by. And I know that some of our listeners are in this camp, too, and I'd like to invite you to to send us a note because we're kind of compiling these. We'll do a mailbag episode one of these days. The other thing that's happening with Thanksgiving is a lot of people are going to be traveling, going to be on the road, on the planes, um, you know, dealing with that horrible Thanksgiving traffic and or airport congestion situation. And you're going to need something to listen to. And if you've gotten to this point in the podcast, you've... You've already listened to this episode, but there may be people in your life who need something to listen to during their long drive to Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, this is a great time to recommend Cheap Talk to your friends and family, your friends, your frenemies, um, anyone in your life who you think needs, needs a little bit of international relations. Please recommend us. Uh, go on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and, and leave us a review. It helps us find new listeners.
0: You know, Jeff, uh, when, I'm, when I'm in a social situation, uh, like when I'm in an Uber or something like that, and the driver asks me what I do, I tell them that I'm a tax attorney uh, for the Securities and Exchange Commission, and that ends all conversation right there. That's pretty so good. I, 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 yeah, because I, what, what, what happens if you say if you're an international relations professor, they'll say, like, well, what, what, do, you, what do you think about what's going on in, in Israel? What do you think is going on in Ukraine? And it's just like,
1: <sighs> well, then that gives you an in to recommend the podcast.
0: Oh, that's true. I wasn't thinking about it from a marketing perspective. You're right.
1: You're, you're you're in an Uber. The Uber driver puts on some music. You're like, you know what? We should be listening. to <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me send you a link to this this podcast. You're gonna you're gonna love it.
0: Our aim should be, yeah, playing in every New York City yellow cab. Like we just, it should have like you know, cheap talk podcast is going. That should be like a yeah. thing, like a New York that's thing. Not,
1: that's we'll my talk to, We'll talk
0: to Eric Adams about that. He's got bigger fish for fry.
1: Thanks, everyone. Uh, thanks, Marcus. We'll, we'll see you in a couple
0: weeks. Sounds good. Have a great Thanksgiving. So, Jeff, um, it's, we're recording this kind of the week before Thanksgiving. And last year, you had me slather my raw turkey and mayonnaise. And, and that, that actually worked worked well. I'm, I'm very curious to hear what sort of tips you have for me this year.
1: Well I'm wondering what are your plans for for this year? you' uh, are you are you gonna do turkey? Are you gonna go non-traditional? Are you gonna make some chicken?
0: Nope, nope, nope. I'm gonna go I'm gonna go turkey. I'm gonna lather that bad boy up in uh, Duke's mayonnaise. I'm gonna do a little some herb blend. Um, I'm not gonna sasquatch the turkey. You, you every year you tell me to sasquatch it? Spat, spatchcock. right. I'm not gonna cut it cut it open and take the backbone out and spread it out. None of that. I'm gonna put it in the oven like a, a sort of normal person. And I'm just going to lay, lay the, layer the the mayonnaise on with some herbs and see what happens.
1: All right. So let me just say, I think that you're making a mistake. Right. And if you had to choose one thing to do that's going to be like the thing you do this year, it would not be the mayonnaise. Drop the mayonnaise, spatchcock the turkey. And, and the reason is that the, the biggest problem with cooking a whole turkey in your oven is that there's a differential temperature within the turkey's big bird and... You want to make sure that all of that meat is cooked at the, the same level, right? So you don't want half of it overdone, half of it underdone. And, and the way to do that is to flatten it out, right? So that the heat has only has so much to penetrate. And so if there's one thing you do that will save your turkey from overcooked oblivion, it's spatchcocking the bird. So flattening it out, putting it on a sheet pan, Put it in the oven, and and then if you want to do the mayonnaise, if you want to do a dry brine, if you want to do none of that, that that's okay. You've already done the main thing that's going to save your turkey, and and make
0: it the star of the show. The reason I don't like this idea is it's a little gross because you have to take like the backbone of the turkey out, right? So I have to cut I have to cut two slits and like take the backbone out and then spread it out. That just it's it seems like very violent. Like I'm I like you know taking the the gizzards out of the neck cavity putting the mayonnaise on, a little salt and pepper, some herbs, whatever, and just sticking it in the oven. Like, that that seems natural to me. The idea that I'm going to, like, take the backbone off of the turkey just seems wrong. I understand what you're saying. So have you haven't you, you have never tried doing this? No, I've never even done it before. And I feel like the, 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 only, the problem is we always talk about this, like, the day before I'm about to do it. Like, what I should do is, like, in August, like, buy a turkey and, like, try this. <laughs> you but want I to never, practice. I, I you need, practice. You need
1: a stunt turkey to practice on.
0: Exactly. But I never do that. And so it's, it's, it's kind of like, a, you know, uh, there's a high profile day to be testing out a new recipe. You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of pressure.
1: So I just invite you to watch a YouTube video of somebody doing this, because I think that there's a lot of worry and angst and apprehension around yes. this procedure. But really, it's not that hard. And people who... Have tried it. Will tell you this is a thing that anyone can do. This doesn't require any particular level of expertise, any kind of turkey experience. You can do this. It's not as difficult as you might think. And watch a video and you'll see like it's, it's not that that hard. And it's going to make the turkey better than you've ever had. Even the mayonnaise trick, that only can go so far.
0: That only gets you so far. Exactly. Right, right.
1: Because you're, you're overcooking the meat, right? And, right? and what you want to do is have the meat perfectly cooked.
0: So, I guess what I could do next week is I could I could get a chicken. I could try to sasquatch the chicken, and then if that works, I'll have a little bit more confidence to attack the turkey that way.
1: Sure. I mean, you certainly you certainly could. I, I also think I'm confident that you can manage this, right? Mm. Because the, part of the thing about about spatchcocking is that you're no longer concerned with the presentation of the turkey, right? That's
0: very clear, right? Because
1: right? like you you've already like made a mess of things, so even if you screw it up. It doesn't matter what it looks like because you're 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 cutting that thing up and you're you're putting it on a platter. So, so I you, know,
0: but if you look at the Kenji video, I, I was watching the Kenji video today, yeah. and he, he he did actually a very nice for the, for those of you that are, are uh, Kenji. What's his last name? Uh, Lopez Alt. Lopez Alt uh, fans or not fans, he has a very good YouTube channel where he goes over lots of different great. cooking things. Right yeah. today, he did sort of like a marathon, hour and a half, like every question and answer from you know people oh, that's on the great. internet. Asking him about, about Thanksgiving stuff, and he covers turkey and and stuffing and mashed potatoes.
1: Did did he say what I'm saying that spash cocking is the thing?
0: He said he said he said what you said. So he basically said it, sasquatch the thing is number one. If yeah. you're not going to do that, do the mayonnaise trick, you know. And then he went into the various roasting methods. If you're going to do the old school, but but he does make it seem like it's pretty simple. And he he you know.
1: Did he demo it? I think he has a video where he demos
0: spatchcocking. He does have. I didn't watch that today, but he does have another video where. He yeah, I
1: think it. once you yeah. watch that, you will see like this is not as hard as you're making it out to be. I, I was at a. Um, I probably shouldn't call out anyone in particular for, for their turkey habits, but I, I was at a Thanksgiving recently where, as an alternative to doing this, the folks making the turkey took the turkey out of the oven before it was completely cooked, and right. cut it up. And then put some of the turkey back in the oven and and <laughs> took out the stuff that was done. And let me tell you, that is Ooh. not the way to go because the you haven't allowed it to rest. And no. all of the 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 juiciness of the turkey is like bleeding out Ooh. onto the counter, right? Like it's bad, Ooh. bad scene. And I was watching That's this happen not, like oh. a it was like a train wreck, and I'm like, no, don't do it. But I you know, it's not my turkey, right? So I'm not I don't feel empowered to to do an intervention. But
0: no, that's horrible. But like,
1: everyone's trying, struggling with the same problem. And that is like trying not to overcook the, the meat. And there's only so much you can do if you maintain the turkey in its original configuration.
0: Can I, can I make one admission to you though, Jeff? Sure. I think turkey meat is kind of gross.
1: Maybe you should try not overcooking it.
0: <laughs> no, know, no, no, I change I, your I... tune. <laughs> there's a in the movie um Wag the Dog, there's a scene where the, the sort of FBI agent sits down with a group of people who are like manufacturing this war for, you know, diversionary war purposes. And the guy sits down and he says, I two things I know to be true. First thing is there's no difference between good flan and bad flan. <laughs> and I feel the same way with turkey. Like I I like a good a good piece of turkey that's like juice, juicy and moist to me is kind of indistinguishable or observ- observ- observationally equivalent, as we might say in social science, to, uh, of uh, of a one that's dried out that I would make. And so, part of me kind of says it doesn't really matter because it's kind of gross either way. And and the Thanksgiving dinner is really more about the stuffing and the mashed potatoes and whatever you know other veggies you have. So like I. I I don't know. It's hard for me to get all worked up about like increasing the juiciness by like thirty three percent of something that I think tastes kind of gross anyway.
1: Sure. Well, and your your standards are clearly clearly quite low. So yeah, well, you know, I mean, that's one way to approach it, right? Just lower your <laughs> ch- standards and your expectations, and you're sure to succeed. But I, I would hope that you know you would strive to to hit new heights with your with your turkey. But I think this goes to my my overall sense of Thanksgiving, which is that. Nobody likes the turkey really, and what exactly. we really are there for are the side dishes. And mm-hmm. so if there's one kind of central point I want to make on this Thanksgiving episode of Cheap Talk, it's that uh, the side dishes are the thing, and, and and we should be devoting more of our attention to making the best possible side dishes because that's where the real, the real gains come from, right? That's where the real benefit of Thanksgiving – that it's not just the turkey it's it's the it's the abundance of sides and making making a slightly better roasted potato that's a that's an enterprise that's worthwhile what, what are your preferred sides for, for your Thanksgiving, Marcus?
0: I completely agree. Well, what I was going to say is I was watching the Binging with Babish uh, Thanksgiving special. Again, this is a, a YouTube uh, channel where the, the guy cooks and shows I'll, you how to do
1: it. I'll put a link in the show.
0: Uh, yeah, well, in, in the show notes, we'll have a bunch of this stuff. Anyway, but he, was, he was showing a method for mashed potatoes that I, that I really loved. It, it involved um, you know cutting up some Yukon or, or Idaho potatoes. And then pouring in, um, like, you know, a couple cups of, like, heavy cream. Sure. And then, uh, like, three or four sticks of butter. And then sealing this like bag that all the stuff is in, and then sous-viding the entire mixture <laughs> for like a couple hours to get the, the potatoes just to the right temperature, where like they're the perfect consistency. And what's fascinating is that he shows this, and it looks so disgusting because you have all this butter, like it's, it's mostly butter, and it like you know this cream, and then the, and the potatoes. It's almost like equal parts potato butter and cream and then he like mixes it all together and produces this like you know uh, beautiful mashed potatoes i mean you're basically just eating butter so like of course who's who's not gonna like that but that that made me realize like my mashed potato game is so inferior to some of what's out there i don't own a vacuum sealer i don't own a sous vide machine what and i also i'm not gonna i'm not gonna sous vide my mashed potatoes it sounds ridiculous i'll sous vide some mash- some mashed- <laughs> i've got a sous vide machine i've got a vacuum was- sealer you have all those things of course oh, wow you can't. How are you even like, functioning
1: without that stuff? I barely have a slow cooker. And the next thing you should do, the tur- going back to the turkey, so sous vide turkey roulade, like that's Ooh. that's the the way to go, right? Then you don't have to do the whole turkey. You just take like the best part of it and cook it perfectly.
0: But you know, the other thing that I think uh, is kind of tricky about Thanksgiving is that it's it's such a traditional holiday. I mean, it, it's it's all about you know. Sort of things that you've been doing since your childhood, and everything. So it's hard to kind of introduce new stuff. I feel like I feel like you know most people kind of want their go tos, yeah. and this is why like the green bean casserole with the the French onion thingies like sticks around. People have these like comfort foods that they associate with Thanksgiving, and so yeah, you could try something fancy, you could try something new you saw on the internet, but but if people are being like real and honest, they kind of just want whatever they had growing up. You know what I yeah. mean? That's kind of what they they. They taste as comforting, and so and oftentimes that stuff is not all that fancy or or you know difficult to make. It's just you know it's like canned French onions,
1: right? But but you you don't have to give up. You can make the best version of that thing, and and that's I I actually prefer roasted potatoes to mashed potatoes generally. Oh, Because um, really? I find like you know I like I like a little crunch, you know, like the kind of soft skin? inside and the and the uh-huh. crunchy outside. It doesn't have to be skin, but so that that actually is my preference. And I was recently looking at different crispy roast potato recipes. And there's actually a Kenji one that I think is just exceptional, where you basically boil the potatoes first. Mm -hmm. So you par cook the potatoes, and then you take them out when they're almost done, uh, when they're almost tender, and you uh, stir them up with some oil such that they get kind of uh, dinged up. And, And there's a little kind of coating of mashed potato on the outside of each chunk Uh, of potato and then you roast it at high heat and what happens is those nooks and crannies of mm. the outer mashed potato coating become super crisp and the inside remains that kind of pillowy soft texture that you're looking for in a roast
0: potato i think i could get behind that i think i could get behind that
1: that recipe is just – it's doable and it's spectacular. And so like if you're going to do a potato side, do the best potato side. People want the best thing that they rem- – they want what they remember from their childhood, but they want a good version of that. The
0: best version of it. You're right. Yeah. And Binging with Babish, he did the, uh, the, the, the fried onion green bean mm-hmm. casserole, but he made it himself. He did the cream of mushroom soup himself. He made the little French you know, onions himself. I, you you know, YouTube, you can't like taste the food, obviously that would be, that'd be nice, but I, they they look delicious, you know, it's probably much better than the stuff you get out of the can. So I agree. And how, and how more healthy for you or healthier for you, as you said. Yeah.
1: So what is your plan for the menu for your thing? So you're hosting, so you, you get to kind of control the menu. What, what are you going to, what are you going to do?
0: Yeah, most likely I'm going to disregard everything we just talked about and just do what I do every single year. Yeah. Which is stick – well, I'm going to do the mayonnaise trick because the mayonnaise trick was fantastic.
1: But there's hope for you because last year we had this conversation and then you, you went ahead and you did the mayonnaise even though you had not done a – you did had not done a test run,
0: you know? The longtime listener of this pod will remember that I was very skeptical of the mayonnaise uh, idea. It's sounded a disgusting to me. Yeah. And, and, and I got to be honest with you, Jeff. Last year when I was lathering up that raw bird with salmonella <laughs> all over my kitchen <laughs> – it was a little disgusting, <laughs> but you, you put it in the oven, you know, a few hours later you look in there and there's this like nice, you know, browning that's occurring on the skin and it's like, it's nice and crispy and it's, I, I infused the mayonnaise with some herbs and so the, the crispiness of the of the skin combined with like the sort of herbs feeling, oh, it was delicious, it was delicious. So I, I'm open to change, I'm open to change. I just think, t- you know, cracking the backbone out of the turkey and spreading it out is a little, a little step too far. Sure.
1: Okay. That's maybe a bruise too far. So my intervention then this year will be focused on the potatoes. I think you can go with a roasted potato, and I'm going to recommend this particular approach to doing doing roasted potato. I'll send you the link. Okay. Send me the link. Put this put the link in the in the show notes. The link will be in the show notes. Check it out. Kenji has had a series of roasted mashed potato recipes over the years if you've been following him closely, but this is the the evolution of the Kenji crispy roasted potato. So there were there were some starter approaches. He did different things, and this is ultimately the best version of this dish. That
0: that You, you know can what I might imagine? do? I might do a potato duo. Oh. Potato two ways. So we had the mashed potato for the traditionalists in the room, and then the Kenji potato. And you can compare you pair the two. I'm sure they were, you know, be a lot of potato, but who doesn't love potatoes? I mean, they're delicious. Right. You can never have
1: too many potatoes. What no, about what not. about dessert? Are you are you a pie person?
0: Uh I personally don't love pies. I appreciate pies. Like I I I I will eat a pie, piece of pie, and enjoy it. And I appreciate the effort that goes into it, but it's not the thing that I'm dying to have on Thanksgiving. Like, for example, I'm a I'm a savory person, right? And so like I'm I'm looking forward to all of the I mean I'm savory in <laughs> many different ways. I, I prefer savory foods is what I was trying sure, to say. That's get I got gotcha. what that sounds, Yeah. Uh and so you know, I I'm looking forward to the stuffing, the mashed potatoes, the the weird kenji potatoes, the, the the turkey, this and that. The the desserts are probably the 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 thing that I'm least looking forward to, like the the last on my list. I still enjoy eating them, but I'm not a big desserts guy. I just I I, I never have. have been. Okay. But if I'm going to eat a dessert on Thanksgiving, I do want pumpkin pie.
1: Yeah, my I I, I don't mind pie. I'm just not like a uh I don't think I can make. I, I've never successfully made a good pie, so so like my my pie options are limited. So I, I like to look to other kinds of desserts, um, like a like a brownie or a cookie or right. a, a, like a small cake. You know, something that's more in my in my ability.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, and, and the thing is, is like if you if you're not like a big sweets person. And you're sort of like thinking about pie as like this thing that you have to do. It's kind of a bummer, right? It's sort of, I would rather just have a cookie, but it's Thanksgiving. So I need to have pie and like, right. cause that's a traditional, you know, thing. But frankly, if we're being honest, like a, a scoop of ice cream would probably be just as good. Yeah.
1: You put enough whipped cream on it. It's fine. You know?
0: And the other thing is by the time I'm done with the turkey and the stuffing and, st- you know, stuffing my face with all the other, you know, sort of savory dishes, I'm often not really in the mood for more food, you know? Yeah. And if I am going to have, if I am to have more food, I'm going to have like a turkey sandwich later. Later that evening,
1: yes, <laughs> that's right. you're a little like game, post game <laughs> turkey.
0: you get hungry, you know, a couple yeah. hours later, a little twinge of the hunger.
1: sure. and then are you are you the kind of person who's eating the turkey for the, for the next week as uh, as leftovers or yeah do you just... I,
0: although I, you know I normally will I'll call it after like day three or four. I, a week is pushing it i'm I'm one of these people that has like a, a sort of hard rule that that leftovers after day three or four are a little sketchy. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I kind of I'll I'll throw out whatever we have left over after day four. Um, but I, I know there are people that will have they'll freeze their stuff and then they they save the carcass of the turkey and then they make like a soup and a broth. And, you know, I, I don't do any of that stuff.
1: Oh, speaking of the turkey carcass, this is the problem for you with the with the spatchcocking is that you need to make the the poison stuffing. That's going to that the, the, the stuffing that's soaked in salmonella that you make every year. It's all coming back to me, man. I'm remembering our past conversations about this. That you you are an uncooked stuffing person. You put the stuff in there. You you put it in the oven, and you hope. Cross your fingers. Hope for the best. And if someone dies, someone dies.
0: Well, well. To be clear, this, the stuffing starts uncooked, but it, it's cooked. It's just in the cavity of the bird. Right, right. You right? don't
1: pre cook. You don't pre cook the items. Right.
0: Right, I mean, I, I've done it both ways. I just think there's something glorious about the juices of the turkey. The turkey juices, like infusing yeah. Yeah, the raw turkey is,
1: juice that you're, <laughs> you're eating. In, it's in raw. You're it, stuff. It, it,
0: it'll it'll become cooked. It's raw to begin with. You're right, but this is how most cooking works, right? And so, like, you cook it, uh, and, and you're gonna say, yeah, but then you have to cook the turkey too much because has to, the stuff he has to get to 165 degrees. Well,
1: that's lead. Yeah, that contributes to the overcooking of your turkey for sure. But it's
0: but it's worth it. Okay. For the turkey – for the stuffing that has that, those turkey juices, like, just infused, you can't replicate that. You can't replicate that in an oven, like, by itself. You just can't. That, that flavor.
1: Yeah. I mean, I wonder if what you should do is eat the stuffing and discard the turkey, <laughs> you know, because you've, <laughs> you've, you've created the best possible stuffing. That's what people want. The, the turkey That's is actually hopelessly overcooked by this point, right? Like, so the turkey is like, just like inedible. the vehicle.
0: It's like the vehicle for making like good right. stuff. It's just a
1: shame that that turkey had to sacrifice itself for your stuff. It's the
0: mechanism. It's the mechanism for like creating the beautiful stuffing. That's right. Yeah. It's and more it's of a, a, it's it's a, a stuffing
1: delivery vehicle. Of...
0: <laughs> well, you're not wrong about that. Yeah. You're not wrong. Well, this has been a good podcast, Jeff. Um, well, happy see Thanksgiving, you Marcus. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we're going to be off
1: next week because of Thanksgiving, but um, I'm glad. I, you know, I'll, I'll be I'll be interested to check back in and see how things went and how you enjoyed the, these extra crispy roast potatoes that we're talking. I'm
0: about. sure will be. I'm sure it'll be lovely. Uh, I'll be sure to give you a blow by blow of, of every step along the way and how I want, I want everybody the, raved about the before and after
1: picture of the like the whole turkey and then the spatchcocked version. The laid yes, out the version does. with yeah. the
0: mayonnaise and the backbone sticking out. It's going to be like a, a, a you know, 90 degree angle <laughs> coming reach out of
1: the vert And pull that spine out like it's Mortal Kombat. You know? I'm going to
0: cut my, cut my <laughs> finger on the bones and there's going to be blood everywhere. See you next week, everybody. <laughs> see you
1: next week. Or not next week. We'll see you after Thanksgiving.
0: We'll see you after Thanksgiving. Whenever that is. I thought maybe we could close with a discussion of a, a film that I saw. Um, that I recommend for everybody over the Thanksgiving break, if you have time. Uh, it's on Amazon Video, iTunes, uh, Movies, whatever they're calling it. And it's the film BlackBerry, which is um, near and dear to my heart as somebody who was a diehard BlackBerry user for so long. I actually still have Blackberries that I use in my house on the on the local Wi-Fi. They no longer work on the AT&T or T-Mobile networks. Um, they were sadly discontinued, but they still work on, at home. And so I can still, you know, sort of type on my BlackBerry blackberry uh keypad And was fascinating about this movie is just the the sort of um the moment in time and i think we've discussed this on the pod before the moment in time that blackberry had it all they were on top of the world and it was for like five minutes but during those five minutes they just they they could not be beaten and a new new technology came along this this guy said got up on a stage and said we're going to put an iPod together with a phone and we're going to call it an iPhone and they laughed and they scoffed and they're like it's not going to have a keyboard are you kidding me what a joke this is and as we all know the you know for for BlackBerry for the research and motion uh, company that the the company that made BlackBerry in Canada in Ontario Canada or Hamilton maybe it was Hamilton um you know, it was it was over for them, and so it's just it's a really sort of like sad story. Sad for me, uh, you want maybe won't find it sad, but like a, a very very sad story about a company that just was on the edge of domination, or really did dominate for for a period of time, and then kind of kind of lost it all very quickly. It's it's sad, but it's it's a it's a good watch, and it's it's the guy uh, from um, it's always sunny in Philadelphia, the you know one of the funny guys, and he has a he has a, a bald wig thing that he wears. He looks. Pretty bad, but it's you know it's good. It's it's a it's funny. It's it's heartwarming. It's sad. It's it's depressing. But you'll you'll like it. Yeah. So I, I'm glad you I'm glad you finally saw it. So
1: on this podcast we talked about this movie. Like oh, we have talked ago. about this
0: already, but I hadn't well, seen we, it before. I,
1: I recommended this movie to you. We we talked about the trailer, and I'm glad <sighs> I'm glad that you finally saw it. So if, if folks want to watch and you don't want to pay for it, if you happen to subscribe, it's on AMC Plus. Um, I don't know. if I'm the only one who subscribes to AMC Plus. Are you telling me I bought out?
0: this film without? I might have actually been able to stream it for free. I think I gave you my AMC Plus credentials. I think I have AMC Plus uh, like like a year ago. I, I have I have everything. I have all of them. So it's probable <laughs> that I could have streamed this for free. But I, what I don't have is the time to search through every single service that I have. By the way, if anybody if anybody's out there, let me give you a business idea. So they have this thing called like decider.com and Rotten Tomatoes. There's these services that are supposed to tell you where you can stream a movie, like what service you need, but they never work. They're always outdated. Like the minute they post the thing, like Back to the Future is on Paramount+. Plus. You go to Paramount+, it's like, oh, no, it's not there anymore because the website's out of date. So somebody needs to come along with a service that provides in real time, not what was going on, not what was streaming last week or a month ago, but in real time where any movie that I plug in, Back to the Future Three. It'll tell me here's where you can stream Back to the Future Three. And if you have any of these services, you go there and watch it for free. And if you don't, you pay Amazon 4.99 or whatever to rent it. I don't understand why this is so hard to 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 make. It's it seems like a, a technological feat that's just not possible to overcome.
1: Okay, so the best website that does this is called JustWatch.com. Okay, and so that is what I looked at to tell me that Blackberry is on AMC Plus. It's almost always right. The okay. other place you can go, for those of you who have a Apple TV or another Apple device, is the Apple TV app uh, on that device has a good database of current things. And so if you search, if you search in the Apple TV app for the movie you want to watch, it will farm you out to whatever service is currently streaming that movie okay. because Apple has all that data because there are, all those apps are built into Apple's Apple
0: system. So you're telling me? I'm glad I could solve this problem for you, Marcus. Well, when I so when I so when I Google like where can I stream Back to the Future Three, you tell me that's not the best way to be doing it.
1: No, you should go to JustWatch.com.
0: Okay. Just uh,
1: type in Back to the Future Three, Back to the Future Part Three. Yeah, we're is gonna streaming watch on Fubo.
0: Peacock. Who is Fubo? Fubo. What's Fubo? Fubo.
1: What's Fubo? Is a uh, like a uh, over the top uh, online cable service. Peacock has it. Okay, and uh, USA has it for those who are cable subscribers. You can go to the USA app and watch watch back. Well, to the I could do that three because
0: I still haven't. We haven't cut the cord here. We're still Cox subscribers. Oh, all right. Yeah, we get old school cable TV. It's just hmm. nice being able to flip around the remote control. I like that. Interesting. Um. Okay. Yeah, I completely forgotten that you had mentioned uh, the BlackBerry movie on a previous pod. I, I recommend it. I, I I saw it. I think everybody listening. I haven't seen
1: it. I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it on your recommendation, Marcus. But thank you for
0: that. It's you're, you're probably not gonna get as much out of it as a non Blackberry person, but for me it was it was quite heartwarming.
1: I will recommend uh, for for you know we're gonna be off next week because of Thanksgiving. So if folks need some replacement entertainment for the hour of your life that normally would be taken up by listening to deep talk. I'm gonna recommend the killer. On Netflix, David Fincher's new movie. It's very good. Okay. Very good. Violent, but
0: good. So uh What's the I, what's the, what's the genre?
1: It is a, an assassin movie. Oh, okay. Hitman movie. Um, but in the kind of David Fitcher uh style. So okay. it's 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 very well done. Very good. I think
0: I could get behind that.
1: Yeah.